Hallelujah. Father, this day we've experienced any number of challenges, difficulties, distractions, sins that easily beset that the enemy would seek to use to turn our eyes from Jesus Christ. But now, as we do in each time we gather for family worship, our own personal devotions, every time your scriptures are open, and when we gather in your name to proclaim and to listen to your word announced to us, we turn to that which will abide and stand forever, was written down under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And in your word, we have sung of themes we've learned, that Christ paid it all, that his blood was the payment for our redemption, that in him we have righteousness and holiness and presentable robes, Lord, that we might stand in your presence, accepted and loved, and to experience the great communion and reconciliation that is available in Christ alone. This is just one example of the great, rich, and overflowing eternal rewards of every true believer in Jesus Christ and His work on Calvary. Lord, as we open your scriptures and read of these themes and many more from the pages of the Old Covenant fulfilled in the New, I pray that our Worship language would be enriched with more vocabulary to offer to you the praise you so deserve. And I pray that our feet would be straight and narrow upon the road that, that you have called us to walk. We pray that our witness would be bold and convicting to our children, to the lost in our family. We might have opportunity to shine as lights to, to the world around us, to anyone who we might meet that has not met Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. May we be faithful to shine and hold out the hope of Christ to them in the gospel that we read of and we bow before today. These are your authoritative words. We are your servants. This is your kingdom and it will never end. And you will add to our numbers daily as many who are being saved around this world until the fullness of time and you return. We confess these things and encourage our souls as we turn to your holy word, sufficient and powerful, authoritative, clear, and forever, Lord, established in heaven. And as your will is done and your kingdom has come unfolding, even in this earth and in our lives, we thank you for this opportunity that your grace has given us this day. May the lost be convicted. May they repent. May your people be convicted and walk in a manner worthy of this call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Praise God for the opportunity to turn to His Word today and to behold these words written down so long ago that are relevant for us just as much as the day they were written. Today we turn to our Genesis series, chapter 47, and we will wrap up this chapter, Lord willing, today with one final contrast between the nation of Egypt as this representative of an average pagan society is given to us with a few details. And we will compare that in one more contrast to the peoples represented by Jacob and his family, which are a nation, which are a nation in sort of infant form. Seventy people, as you recall, have traveled from Canaan to seek refuge in this prosperous pagan and foreign land because of the famine that has been upon, that has fallen upon them. Little did they know that they would one day be a million strong 400 years later and leave this place, accompanied by the overwhelming power and miraculous wonders of their Lord. 
In the meantime, though, walking by faith, as we see Jacob even approaching death, we have the beginnings of God's covenant people organized in nation form, and we have something of a whole different history, background, uh, identity, religious order, and so forth, uh, that is a contrast to the nation around them. This is a theme that we've been exploring, and we continue today as we close Genesis 47 under this title, <coughs> excuse me, A People's Contrast. That is to say, there's a difference between the peoples of Egypt or the people of Egypt generally finding their identity with the culture of this pagan land and the people of Jacob's household, the covenant family, the people of God, as we find them in Goshen. The aim of this morning's message, as much as we relate to these distinctions and they are a pattern for the church yet today, is to proclaim the identity of true believers in Christ. This distinction allows us to better understand who we are in Jesus. We too are the covenant people of God. We too are called out of a foreign and pagan land, if you will. We too are to be distinct and separate and to shine as a light and a hope for the nations around us. And even more so if it could be said, because Christ has come and the rest of the scriptures are ours in hand and we have everything we need sufficient to life and godliness for this task. With your hearts in reverence to the word of God and its authority, would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word today? Consider the scriptures in your hearing, Genesis 47, 27 through 31. Here is the word of God. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We've considered the second half of Genesis in light of contrast between two nations. Egypt at the time of this exile, uh, through the period of Exodus under Moses, is one nation, if you will. Israel, as established under Moses and evident in Jacob's family at this time, is the other nation. Today, all right, we've noted thus far, just a reminder, a contrast of provision. The source of provision for the people of the land versus the source of provision for God's people. We've also noted a, noted a contrast of priesthood, the way, the way the priest class and the order, religious order of ancient Egypt is way different than that which would be eventually ordered and constituted under Moses during the time of the Exodus. Thirdly, we considered a contrast in politics, the way the social order of this nation is organized versus how Israel will be constituted once again when God establishes his nation as a light and as a beacon of hope and an example to the Gentiles. And finally this morning, our fourth and final contrast in this passage is that of peoples. The national, cultural, historical, and religious identity of the covenant people of God as represented by the patriarch Jacob is far different than the national, cultural, historical, and religious identity of the ordinary citizens of Egypt. 
The patriarch Jacob and his family would remain purposely and intentionally distinct by God's plan from Egypt and, for that matter, all other pagan nations. The attention of the text for the remainder of Genesis will now turn in Genesis 47-28 to be more focused on the relationships within the covenant family, the relational dynamics, the interaction, and the family uh, lineage, and the death and the uh, passing of the patriarch and so forth, and um, eventually the concern of the brothers expressed to Joseph, the remainder of Joseph's tenure in Egypt. These are the focus. Uh, in part, I suggest that this is to highlight this distinction, the difference between uh, the covenant family and national Egypt. The four identifying characteristics we derive from our text today remain relevant for the church of our hour. As the people in God, of God, in Christ, we too, I submit, are marked by the following. And that leads me to our outline today. Israel, or you could say by extension, the church of Jesus Christ, would be a people marked by the following. These are four characteristics we see even in these short verses that we've read today. Number one, favor in spite of hardship. Number two, frailty or weakness. And, as far as the world goes, insignificant numbers. So favor in spite of hardship, frailty and insignificant numbers as far as uh, the world judges it. Thirdly, covenant obligation. So that would be responsibility to the covenant, God's word and directives. And then fourthly, a legacy of surpassing faith. Surpassing would be beyond, over, above. A legacy of faith. So these are four marks of Jacob and company that we see in our text today as Genesis 47 closes. And these would continue to identify the people of God, especially when they were standing upon or standing in their purpose that God had ordained for them. And they are also marks of the church today. So that is the structure of our message today. And uh, we will touch upon these verses and some in the new, some corresponding parallel texts as well. And just to give you an idea of the structure, each point underneath will have like a contrast with Egypt, Israel, and company at the time, and then an application for us as the people of God today. Number one, Israel would be a people marked by favor in spite of hardship. This favor was obvious in that the blessing and prosperity of Goshen created such a circumstance to the glory of God and to the benefit of the people that it stands out as probably the starkest uh, contextual contrast, if you will. We've referenced this several times. It bears repeating Genesis 47, 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. In spite of the hardship, what was the hardship? Well, of course, most obvious is the famine, the lack of provisions, you know, the fields had gone bone dry. The people of the surrounding regions had nothing to eat, and so they would come in droves to receive and basically submit to the mercy of the Pharaoh under the administration of Joseph to the great stores of food that were in Egypt that we've read about recently. This is the hardship that not only Israel faced at the time, but all of the land, all of the known world. Also, there was the hardship, as far as Israel was concerned, of being dislocated, removed from your land. It is commonly understood all through history, even now, today, that if you remove someone from their roots, their familiar surroundings, the land in which they were, were birthed, maybe multiple generations, a people of a shared culture and language, that it can be very disruptive. When refugee status is sought in another country, it's a huge deal. 
takes quite a while to assimilate to a new people, a new land, a new language, and so forth. Israel, however, in spite of this hardship, was provided for by the Lord himself. He gave them a little enclave. He gave them a little oasis full of provision where they were allowed to remain until there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. But in the meantime, they retained their culture, their language, their religious identity, and this was by God's design that they would continue to be a light to this nation. And all the while, in contrast to Egypt, they had plenty to eat, their flocks were growing, and they grew and multiplied greatly. In fact, we see as the record continues that eventually Pharaohs were worried that they would outnumber the native folks in Egypt, and they had to do something about it. And so... Well, people were commanded to throw babies into the Nile. That's a, uh, a story, of course, in, at a later date in the text. In the meantime, however, we see that there was favor, blessing, and prosperity for the people of God in spite of hardship. Whereas in Egypt, the, their citizenship was marked at this time by the social scars of famine and crisis that would indefinitely be their experience on into the future, which we've read of. And for instance, 24, at the time of harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, for fifth shall be your own. And it goes on to give this 20% taxation mandate. The uh, land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's, but the people, they sold their fields, their flocks, and themselves to Pharaoh. As for the people, he made servants of them. These are the social scars of crisis that would mark the people of Egypt indefinitely into the future. To be an Egyptian at this time was to live through a period where power was consolidated at the state, you lost your private property, you lost your individual liberty, you became a slave to Pharaoh, and because Joseph had enough uh, compassion and goodwill to the people, they would allow you to keep a certain portion of what you owned, yet 20% was under the taxing hand, the heavy taxing hand of Pharaoh, and certainly all the dynamics of strongman kings would pertain like conscription into military forces, and Pharaoh would have his way with the people as he wilt in the future. And since the people had no real liberty, they could easily be as slaves, be called to serve in his court, and so forth. This is the way that monarchies worked back in the day. There, <clears throat> whereas in Egypt, the social scars of famine would mark this nation indefinitely, on the other side of things, the people of God experienced the favor of the Lord and great prosperity. Think of Joseph himself as a particular example of this. Joseph's hardship as a, uh, for instance, was intense indeed. More so, you could say, than the rest of the covenant family. Joseph, as we recall, was sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his loved ones. And then, of course, he was betrayed by others, Potiphar's wife. He had to go to prison on false charges. And after a while, in spite of all of these hardships, we see the favor of the Lord advancing Joseph in spite of these things. And it kind of comes to a crescendo in Genesis 41. Just a reminder, verse 37 and following. This proposal, of course, Pharaoh, or, uh, Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream and its application pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, remember this, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? You see, the Spirit of God indwelling Joseph as a minister of the gospel, if you will, at that time was eventually recognized, and thus Joseph was an example, a testimony, and the favor of the Lord began to shine in spite of the incredible hardship that he had endured. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people 
shall order themselves at your command. And you guys remember what follows next? Pharaoh took his signet ring, 42, off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, made him ride in his second chariot, and called to everyone, all the peoples, to bow before him. As Joseph received a new name representing his royal status, Zaphonath Paneah was allowed to and uh, was given a wife in marriage, Asenath, who was from an important family in the nation. Later went on at just 30 years of age to bear uh, two children in, in the coming years, Manasseh and Ephraim, and to rule the entire nation. As evidence of the spirit in him and God's favor upon him and the recognition of that by the society in which he dwelt. This is the favor of the Lord. It's the prosperity in spite of hardship. That is a mark of the people of God. Joseph experienced it in a profound and dramatic way, individually, and now all of Jacob's family experienced it as far as provisions and possessions, fruitfulness, and multiplication go in Goshen. The favor of the Lord in spite of hardship marks the covenant people of God. Now, in Jeremiah 29 and 30, we won't turn there this morning, but there are times of future exile for the people of God, and yet still God would have favor upon them. In Jeremiah 29, as you recall, the special instructions were given, seek the welfare of the city, thrive, multiply, when you are in a period of exile, even in Babylon itself. You know, be a good steward of the ground, grow crops in your gardens, trade with your neighbors, seek the economic benefit of the place in which you dwell. And as you do so, as you thrive, and as you express goodwill and love for your neighbor, even in a foreign land where they worship idols, it will be a testimony like Joseph was to Egypt and like the people were in Goshen of God's favor in spite of hardship. Now, mind you, they deserved this hardship at the time. During exile, it was the judgment of God. It was punishment because they had broken the covenant. Yet if they would turn to him, if they would obey the words of Jeremiah, if they would listen to the prophets, if they would trust in faith that the Lord in 70 short years would bring them back, then in the meantime, they could be a light and a blessing to the people around them. And then Jeremiah 30, verse 3, it prophesied that the Lord will return the people back to Egypt, that he would make a way for them. And thus, in these times where the enemy might think, well, I have gotten the upper hand over God's covenant plans. I've used the sinfulness of the people of God against him. I've destroyed and stamped out the seed of the Messiah. Surely, now, with all of this a wreckage and sinfulness in the covenant line. God's purposes are thwarted. Yet at each time, whether the hardship was brought on by the enemies from the outside or enemies on the inside, the sinfulness of the people or the wickedness of the culture in which they dwelt, the Lord demonstrated his upper hand by giving his people a light and blessing them and having favor upon them and causing them to shine to their neighbors in spite of the hardship. This is a concept that we can well relate to. In the New Testament, in passages like Matthew 24, you can turn there with me, we learn that the church, the first uh, instance for this, was probably around, the, as, I, as I understand it, around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Great hardship for the people of God. Yet God would preserve His church, and in spite of what was coming, they would be a light. There would be favor, prosperity, and blessing that would visit the early a church, the people of God. This a perennial mark of the people of God is that he chooses times of difficulty to show forth his praise and to glorify him through his people who confess him even under difficulty. Matthew 24, verse 9, we read this. <clears throat> then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus is preparing the people of God for different trials and tribulations that are to be expected in the life course of his kingdom and his purposes in history and in the world. And he explains in particular cases and in general principle that there will be times of great persecution. And you should expect, if you're dwelling in Egypt, that there'll be certain contingencies, if you will, that will hate you and despise you and seek to stamp you out with whatever tools are at their disposal. But he says, take heart, be encouraged, endure. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that Jesus implicitly endorses as he encourages the church to stand. If you go back to the Old Testament scriptures and find that God's spirit indwelling Joseph allowed him to thrive in the, as the only believer, if you will, in this pagan nation, how much greater can you stand with confidence knowing that you have brothers and sisters that will stand in Christ no matter the hardship that you might face? Or if you look to that time in Goshen and see God preserve the people and cause them to be fruitful and to multiply in spite of the hardship and the, uh, all of the uh, tyranny of Egypt around them, then once again, that, that will to persevere starts to build within the faith-filled heart of the believer. Because we relate to this mark of the church or this mark of the people of God, that we will have favor of the Lord we will be blessed and prosper in spite of hardship. And that prosperity and blessing isn't always according to the way we would prefer. It doesn't always mean we're rich and wealthy or have great influence or are famous. No. But what it does mean is that there are opportunities for us to shine forth Christ, to show forth Christ in spite of the repressive environment or culture in which we live. So, for instance, in Joseph's day, this was his good administration and character. In Jacob's day, when he finally joined them, this was the obvious blessing of the people of God. So when we ha now that we are, have received the mercy of God and may find ourselves to some degree sojourners, sojourners and ex exiles, as Peter calls us in this present fallen world, here's a question. What does thriving in Christ look like in spite of exile in our day? Here are just a few examples. Our common identity in Christ if you find your identity in Christ, and so do I, and we gather in his name, the church of Jesus Christ gathered to worship him as an example of thriving in exile. And we have the ability to come and to worship him, and so let us thrive and let us shine in spite of any hardship around us. How about our love for one another? Jesus says that you will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. If there is a unique and a powerful expression of the love that is bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ for brothers and sisters in him, and that is expressed and obvious to the culture around us. That begins to turn heads for those who notice, and they begin to see that there is a thriving and a prosperity and a legitimate, heartfelt, long-standing, enduring relationship and community within the people of God. Even in our expression here, our applications like fellowship groups, this is an opportunity when we gather in Christ's name to study together and to share a meal and fellowship, to thrive in spite of exile. How about trustworthy business ethics? Um, Joseph had these 
kind of character traits that allowed him to thrive and to run different places. Why? Because he was trustworthy. So as you order your small business or as you serve your employer with biblical values, you do so in a way that thrives or in a way that shines the light of Christ to others and allows you to thrive in spite of exile. And in a culture where the trustworthiness of neighbors is less and less to be counted on, and Christian ideals and hard work ethic and integrity are less and less the order of the day, you will shine all the brighter as you live your life according to the law of God and thrive in spite of the degradation around you. And don't be surprised if others are inspired to turn to Christ and ask you for a reason for the hope within and to join our ranks as a result. Sacrificial service to the kingdom, another way to persevere and to thrive in exile. That would be like we uh, apply or we gave the application last week as an act of defiance to the state to bring, uh, in spite of uh, an era of heavy-handed taxation and the further constriction of our civil liberties, as we noted the political contrast between the pagans and the people of God, as we bring our tithes and our giving joyfully into the Lord. It's an act of defiance against the enemy around us. And as Christians are marked by their charity and their love and their service and their commitment and they're laying down their lives to raise big families or go to far reaches of the corners of the earth to be missionaries and to be a testimony. And as this statistical contrast between the believer's values and the ridiculous you know, order of the day in which we live grows greater, what are we doing as a church? We are thriving in spite of exile. Our unwavering convictions, our vehicles full of children, our prayerful concern for others. All of this is thriving in Goshen. So continue to thrive, saints, as the Lord calls you and gives you ability. It's a mark of his blessing, prosperity, and favor upon you. And he uses this to, uh, to broadcast your distinctiveness. Last week's worship text was 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, called to show forth differences between Christ and godliness, and the wickedness of a pagan society. And so Israel would be marked by this, and so are we favor in spite of hardship. Secondly, frailty and insignificant numbers, at least as far as the world is concerned. There's quite the juxtaposition in the text, whereas in Egypt, it was, they were ruling the world at this time. I mean, you talk about a high watermark of power and influence and celebrity and whatever that Egypt had. They were on top of the entire globe as far as the nation who could wield its authority and power and influence and demand whatever they wanted from the people. They had the entire known world wrapped around their powerful finger, if you will. The evidence of this kind of rule is obvious even in the archaeological record. At any given time, in fact, in ancient history, around this time and probably years preceding and many centuries after, there was evidence of, uh, that is boasted among the artifacts, you know, buried beneath the sand in the Near East of international superiority by measure of the following wealth, military might, the economy, and uh, architecture, scholarship, military, artisanship, and empire. In Egypt, this is what greatness was marked by. This is what it meant to be an Egyptian. You should be proud, I'm sure the neighbors would say, or their rulers would say. You are not marked by weakness. You're not insignificant in number. We rule the known world. Our pyramids prove it. Our sphinxes testify to the same. The great burial rituals of our uh, pharaohs as we lay them in the grave and prepare them for the next 
uh, life and gold funerary mass and all these riches and wealth testify to the excess and the power and the influence and the controlling authority that this nation state exercises. And so we will reach far beyond this area of the Nile and we will bring tribute in from the distant regions. This is what it meant to be an Egyptian. I'm proud to be an Egyptian, they would sing and they would testify to the power of the Pharaoh. And they would consider him uh, something of a divine figure and worship him and also all of the resources that made them great. They would extol these things and they would say, upon these we know that our future is secure and that our nation is powerful. Was this the case in Jacob's family? <laughs> no, nothing could be further from the truth. The total opposite, and this is apparent in the text. Turn back with me to Genesis 47. Whereas Egypt is known for power and greatness even in times of famine, this is what's going on in Jacob's family at the time, verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And the time drew near that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. What's Jacob's greatest concern at this time? where his soon-to-die body will be buried. What is this picture that's unfolding on into the next chapter? It's the last visitation. It's the last words. It's saying goodbye to a 147-year-old patriarch as the family uh, will, be, will lose him shortly. And then it's a commitment sought by Jacob that his bones be carried and buried elsewhere with those that had preceded him in the grave. Jacob's deathbed. Israel at this time is marked by death, weariness, frailty. Jacob is not a very impressive leader. We see this is even his testimony. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He said in verse 9, Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I'm nothing compared to Abraham, Jacob says. I'm nothing compared to Isaac. I'm old and weary. I don't have much by way of legacy. I'm not very proud of my 130 years and another 17 I will die. And as he approaches his deathbed, it's something of a pitiful sight. It's a dramatic difference, contrast in the text. In the text. Whereas power is increasing in Egypt, Jacob is only growing older. He's aging. At any given time, uh, in ancient Israel, as we mentioned, uh, the shadow of the sphinxes would declare the power that the pharaohs would seek, to, or the pyramids likewise, would seek to exhibit even beyond the grave. In other words, when pharaohs prepared for death at this time, they'd be buried in monolithic, huge, like ancient skyscrapers. You guys know what pyramids are. And so every camel train that passed in the shadow of that pyramid would turn and think about the legacy and the shadow cast far beyond the grave, this powerful pharaoh. But none of those kind of ideals are expressed at Jacob's deathbed. Instead, we have the frailty of a man who is confessing honestly his own weaknesses. And his family is insignificant in number. Compared to the multitude of Egypt, they're just a small tribal band. This reminds us that God uses the weak and the weary and the small and the insignificant things as far as the world judges them to further his covenant purposes. And when a son of Jacob one day arises to rule the world, who gets the glory? Not Jacob, not Joseph, not any of the patriarchs. No, God, the sovereign covenant keeper, Yahweh alone. 
the one who in and of himself is sufficient to accomplish his will and fulfill it in time, he will get the glory. This is the way that God has ordered his kingdom, not to exalt heroes per se among mere men, but know that through the weakness and the frailty and the humility, the condescension, and yes, even the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, his own son, Jesus Christ, who did not look very powerful and impressive, and people uh, mocked and scourged and killed on Calvary. Nevertheless, through this act, this death on Calvary, taking on the humility of a servant and being flogged and crucified in our place, God has raised up his son through resurrection and ascension and now his advancing gospel to establish a forever kingdom without end. He has used the weak and the frail those who are unimpressive by man's accounting, to accomplish eternal things, even changing our hearts if you've confessed and believed in Jesus Christ today. So Jacob's deathbed to the human eye is a pitiful sight. And so is Jesus hanging on that cruel cross, that instrument of execution as a common crim criminal or worse, crucified by Rome. Imagine what people must have thought as they walked by. Who is that guy? What did he do? What a pitiful sight. They turned their eyes away from the gore of his torn flesh and the pitiful sight of a man hanging there, the victim of this great empire at the time, Rome, just like Egypt was then. But what were they missing if they failed to understand what was going on? God's purposes through affliction and through frailty and weakness to accomplish great things. Even the resurrection of his own people one day, the changing of their hearts, the atoning for their sin, and the gathering of a great multitude. Eventually, saints, our numbers will not be insignificant. We will join as sands of the seashore and stars of the sky and too many to number all the saints who've gone before and all who will be called by this weak and frail Messiah now ascended and ruling over all the nations to the great assembly of the beloved in eternity forever because what he accomplished through what was foolishness to man yet indeed was the wisdom of God. This relates to our day as well, does it not? Who are we? We don't have much to boast about. Our church is not very impressive. You know, people find us, but they have to look, you know, on the corners of the internet to find a like-minded church. And by His grace, He draws us in. What a glorious joy and privilege it is to worship Him. But we don't gather in a coliseum. We're just a small band. We're a rural church. We're an outpost. And we're under certain cultural conditions where we might relate to Egypt to some degree. And discouragement under these conditions, if you just look at the circumstances, is not hard to come by. Nevertheless, God's sovereign hands are not tied by weakness or small numbers. On the contrary. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 7. I love this passage. Because it illustrates that in spite of the frailty that Jacob exhibits in Genesis 47, God has real purpose and meaning in these kinds of things. Later on down the line, it's revealed more clearly to Moses, chapter 7 of Deuteronomy 6 records, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you up, brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Hallelujah. Israel was to glean, glean its confidence on the word of God, on his covenant promises, not by way of numbers, not by way of strength inherent of themselves, but by his promises, which are more sure than the tyrannical hand of a mighty nation. We, you know, we do not, we should not defer hope to America being great again. That's a common phrase. But indeed, we should place our hope in the covenant promises of God that if we are faithful to him, it pleases him to use the weak and the frail to gather for himself a people to show forth his glory in spite of the tyrannical circumstances that they may face. And when he does this kind of thing, we will join our forebears in the faith of old and shouting out, Christ is Lord, to him gets the glory. The reason we're a church is because he reigns. The reason he's gathering more as gospel is going forth, the far corners of the earth are being reached, is because Jesus is king of kings. King of kings today, king of kings then. He gets the glory in using the frail and insignificant by man's measure to accomplish his purposes and the growth of his kingdom. Thirdly, covenant obligation. The people of God would be marked by not just favor in spite of hardship, frailty and insignificant number, but thirdly, covenant obligation. Jacob compels Joseph to covenantally a promise to fulfill his wishes at his deathbed. 29, back in Genesis 47. When the time drew near that Israel must die, turn to Genesis 23 while I'm reading this, if you will. He called his son Joseph and said to him, now, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. This is an interesting covenantal ritual that's a little mysterious to us, but we do have a parallel text in Genesis 23. Now, before we explore that for some context, let us just recognize that whereas in Egypt, covenant obligation to the word of God was really a non-factor. Instead, duty to the collective state and subservience to the same was measured by the people's enslaved status. Of course, we reference in our prior message that the priesthood, the elite, enjoyed private property and the, and the uh, great share of the taxes. They lacked for nothing, but the people were not bound by any covenantal arrangement between a sovereign God which would mark their religious, cultural, national, and historical identity? No, they, as we said, bore the scars of crisis and were mere slaves to the monolithic centralized state. And this is a question of kind of what, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the guarantee of provisions in Egypt under 20% taxation and, as far as your legal status goes, slavery to the state? to the centralized authority that the false god, you know, exercised through this institution and organization? Or would you find your identity among the weak and marginalized as far as man goes, but, in, but uh, uh, follow the covenant and be faithful to it and trust that in the covenant obligation to God's word in faith that God will eventually, maybe not in your lifetime, do great things. This is a contrast that we see set up in part. Genesis 23, similar circumstances and a similar vow or covenant. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died, so death is in the context here again. 
And uh, Abraham rose up, verse 3, from before his bed and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Please let me buy a piece of property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. We see in this passage that Abraham is asking for the people would appear more powerful than him and owning the land for a place to bury his dead. So this is not actually the passage that I was after, but it, is a, it expresses a similar sentiment. Later in chapter 24, Abraham was old, well advanced in years. The Lord had blessed him in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who was in, had charge of all that he had, and listen to this, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, uh, eventually, as you see in the context, yes, he will do this. He will swear this oath. He will trust the Lord to lead him to a suitable bride for the covenant son. So notice the similarity in context. We have the aging patriarch, we have distance from the place that represents the dwelling of the people of God or the cultural, religious identity, you know, and he wants to preserve these things. So he uh, swears, he makes his servants swear an oath and by this ritual placing the hand under the thigh that he would uh, make sure and follow his dying wishes to find a bride suitable for his son in order that the covenant lineage of the family of God might be carried on. This was a testimony to Abraham's obligation to the covenant, his faithfulness to God's promise. He wouldn't just take any old bride from among an unbelieving people, but no, he would go back to those who shared his commitment and shared his convictions from among those people and gather Rebekah, as we come to find, from uh, his kin, so, uh, so to speak, for his son Isaac. And this is how the covenantal lineage continued. So we compare that to Genesis 47, and now Jacob, two generations later, is doing something similar. Again, he's far away from the place of promised dwelling. And he's asking for a covenant commitment and an obligation to be followed up by the next generation, his son. If I have found favor in your sight, please deal kindly, truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But instead, go and, and uh, take my bones with you upon my death and bury me with my forefathers. This is the generational legacy that marked the people of God at this time. We see this is another instance of this hand under a thigh oath. And here again, the aging patriarch has sought solidarity by oath in the interest of God's purposes through the promised family, the covenant lineage. And traveling, he encouraged, and the destiny of his bones would involve traveling to the place of his kindred to secure that burial plot or the place of his resting, just as traveling to the place of Abraham's kindred would secure a wife for his son Isaac in the past. This is the generational legacy we see testified to by the faithful then. And we too, saints, are a people that should be marked by covenant obligation. That is, faithfulness to God's purposes laid out in His Word to us. There's a term called anti-law. Antinomianism is the term. And this is a term that marks those who are not mindful of their covenant obligation. However, on the other side, there are those who understand the purposes of God's law and that they are to mark and distinguish and to lay out a way in which we faithfully worship and serve the Lord. This, as I've uh, mentioned to you in the past, is the third use of the law. God's purpose is to order a people to His will 
according to his word. We are a people that are to be marked by covenant obligation, to swear our allegiance and commitment to the Lord, to walk in the ways that he is laid out. Remember, there are four aspects of kingdom. We covered these years ago in the context of the book of Matthew. The way I divide a kingdom in my mind is by four parts. Sovereign, the king, subject, those under him, realm, and law. We are citizens of a kingdom. It is to say we are subjects of another. We have a sovereign who is our sovereign, King Jesus. We are a subject of his rule. There are, in fact, two categories of subject to Christ's rule. You're either broken covenant with him, an unbeliever, or restored in relationship with him as his subject in good standing because you trust the blood of his son to reconcile you and incorporate you, and now you are his church, his body, his people. You are the people of God. If that has taken place, you are subjects of the king in good standing. And then there's realm, the reach of his rule. As big as Egypt got, they never covered the entire globe, although it was an impressive empire indeed. Jesus covers the entire globe, all the created cosmos, and beyond. The realm of reach of his rule is without end. And then there's law. What is this? It is the will of the sovereign, the way that he has ordained that his, uh, that his society, if you will, be ordered, that his kingdom would be organized. And we look to this, and how is the kingdom of God organized? We look to the scriptures and we see according to his law, according to his standards of righteousness, according to the obligations of his people, according to the will of the king expressed in his word, we know how to serve the Lord. And as we grow in this calling, we call this sanctification, as we grow more and more holy and more and more like Jesus, we walk in a manner according to his word. And the word of God is the standard of our progress to this end. But as we do so, we recognize that we are people who are marked by faithfulness to our king according to the standard of his law and obligation. The law does not save us, but the law allows us to worship our king rightly after he saves us, fulfilling the law in his death on Calvary. So our relationship to the king thus is, mar is marked thus and accordingly. Finally this morning, we have a fourth mark of the people of God implicit in our text. Israel would be marked by favor in spite of hardship, frailty and insignificant numbers, covenant obligation, and finally, a legacy of surpassing faith. Turning back one more time to Genesis 47, the end of this chapter, we see evidence of the faith of Jacob, even though he is approaching his deathbed. He says in 30 and 29b, Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Do you remember we just read in, uh, back in Genesis 23 how Abraham in faith purchased a burying place? The first piece of property that any uh, believer owned in the promised land was this cave at Machpelah where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and so forth were buried. This is the location that Jacob wishes his bones to be relocated to, that he would be buried in that same place, representing a surpassing faith. He answered, I will do as you have said, Joseph, responding to his father. He, uh, Jacob says, swear to me. And he, Joseph, swore to him. Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Kids, where was Joseph buried? Do you guys remember? What happened to his bones? Does anyone know? So we have Jacob's bones end up in cave in Machpelah. Do you guys remember what happened with Joseph's bones? They went out of Egypt too. Do you guys remember when that happened? 
If they went to the promised land, it would would be 400 years later, but Joseph's bones were carried by the people of God during the exodus into the promised land as well. Turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, and we'll see the significance of this and how it was a mark of faith. While you're turning there, we think of Egypt. What was the legacy there? Well, Egypt, perhaps more than any society before or since, was a monumental society or society of monument. Uh, you look, this is attested by, as I said before, the statuary, the hieroglyphic record, the palaces, and so incredibly well designed that they stand, some of them even to this day. Evidence of this great kingdom is found all through the ancient uh, Near East, as you know, they find at one after another pyramid, burial ritual, and the evidence of their ordered, you know, cities, civic engineering, their dynastic power, and their cultural longevity. Uh, that was pretty impressive, at least by man's measures. This was the legacy that Egypt sought. They invested, I remember, uh, kind of a quip by, it's one of my uh, quotes that I remember from a song where someone was, was asking, hey, do you seek, I can't remember the famous celebrity who said this, but someone asked him, are you seeking to achieve immortality through your art? And he said, oh, I'd rather be immortal by not dying. Do you seek to achieve immortality through your art or what you seek to create? He said, well, I'd rather be immortal by not dying. Well, Egypt, in Egypt, they sought for immortality, but death was an inescapable reality since the fall. So they did absolutely everything they could to preserve the legacy beyond the grave, and this is testified to. So death was an enemy that Egypt sought to overcome by burying their kings with pitiful large amounts of treasure. Would that work? Nope. You can't defeat the enemy with pagan ritualistic burials. Uh, They sought to overcome the looming shadow of the great first enemy death by, you know, the impressive influence of their people. But no, all these eventually crumble as well. They're interesting artifacts, but they're a cautionary tale. Every pyramid, every statue, every burial ritual evident as we, you know, go in and catalog and place in museums, King Tut and all his, uh, you know, famous exploits and stuff by way of hieroglyphic record and so forth, all of this shows us that there is no conquering death by ordinary means. You can do all of this, and what you have is a really rich treasure trove for grave robbers to profit off of one day. Or an interesting case study, and the futility of trying to achieve immortality, to live forever by what you build or what you buy. And uh, this is impossible, of course, but Egypt was determined to accomplish something through what they did. But as an example of the futility of uh, of of this kind of legacy, Their efforts proved futile. Meanwhile, on the other side, by contrast, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, displayed a remarkable faith. And their faith, in some ways, was most evident in death. Death is a great trial. It's the greatest enemy, if you will. And things are clarified and intensified at the end of life in ways that the naivete of youth does not afford. And Hebrews talks about this in the context of the saints of old. And we read of this in Hebrews 11, 20 through 22, for instance. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. We'll read of that in future weeks, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And we see other examples, of course. These all died in faith, rewinding to verse 13, not having received the things promised. No pyramid in their name, no sphinx in their honor. No burial rituals would be, would be afforded Jacob. No, he would rather his bones be uh, strapped to a cart and carried to a grave in the promised land, a place riddled by famine with a few other skeletons in that dusty cavern. Why? Because he was a man of faith, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These people speak thus, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, why don't you find your identity in Egypt? It's quite the impressive place. No, take me back, my bones, even if I'm not alive, to the place of burial in the promised land. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, one that Egypt can't hold a candle to. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The surpassing faith, the remarkable forefathers, even in death, evidenced, and sometimes especially so, this kind of faith. The destiny of Jacob's bones spoke to his conviction that God's promises were stronger than death, stronger than his weak and pitiful life, stronger than Egypt. And when he was relocated by faith to that promised land, he somehow knew that there, that place represented God's purposes coming together in the fullness of time to save a people, to ransom a nation, to restore the covenant, and to build a king and kingdom that would overshadow and overrule anything that Egypt could boast. This is the remarkable faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers. They, in this, these demonstrations and their requests, even at the end of life, they showed that they believed that God, they had faith in God's sovereign hand, stronger than the hand of Pharaoh. They had faith in the promises of God and His covenant stronger than the reality of death. They had faith that His purposes were greater than their own legacy and that in Him and in His Word, He had redemptive, divine intentions. He would save a people. He would do it someday. And life and God's purposes were bigger than their mere legacy. In this, the people of God, as they joined in faith, with their forebears, they would find their true national identity. What are our statues? What are our memorials? What of our public squares? What of our museums, our money, and the measures of our wealth? Do these represent true national identity? No, our true identity is to be found in the faith of our own forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Romans 2 tells us, that he is not a Jew who is one merely outwardly in circumcision, rather is a matter of the heart. That if you know Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob to come, if you trust that he has died for your sins, then there is prepared for you a king and a kingdom that will endure forever. We, as the scriptures tell us, are a great nation and a people, even heirs of Abraham, our worship text, Galatians 3, because of this act. This great nation of the kingdom of God would be distinguished from the identity of false nations that we live in or nations in the past. And this would be by virtue of God's promises coming true in His due time. So as we stand once again and worship the Lord today, let us pray and remember that we are a people marked by favor in spite of hardship, frailty in insignificant numbers, yet God does great things, 
obligation to the covenant and a surpassing faith. Lord, we pray the testimony of Jacob and these verses we've read today would be ours. That as we face hardship or even the end of our own lives, we might have spiritual eyes to see your purposes far beyond the short period of time in which we live. I pray, Lord, as you encourage the church with this perspective, that we would shine all the brighter to a people who are absurdly wasting away their lives in pursuit of other things. Only in Christ is there hope for salvation. It's his name that we find our identity. It's his promises that we celebrate fulfilled on Calvary. And it is in him and him alone we offer our praise and worship this day as we thank him, our Lord and Savior, for saving us, redeeming us, and making us a people with the, under the great King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.